Hi everyone, today we have something a bit different. A couple of weeks back, Kai and I finally got to hang out in person at New York Fintech Week and cooked up a special bonus episode for you. This was originally recorded for the Fintech Insider podcast, but we thought the conversation was so good that we wanted to share it with you, our Blockchain Insider listeners. Enjoy. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor and we are live at New York Fintech Week. Make some noise, New York! <laughs> Knew they could do it. In today's episode, we are diving into the topic of central bank digital currencies. And I don't know if anybody saw, but earlier this year, the Biden administration released an executive order that said, and I quote, my administration places the highest urgency on research and development efforts into the potential design and deployment options of a United States central bank digital currency. Oh my goodness, highest urgency priority. We cannot ignore this stuff from the president himself. Um, it has to be happening. Um, to get started, thankfully, I'm not alone, otherwise it would be weird. Um, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who are gonna shed some light into all things CBDCs. And I'm bringing to FinTech Insider, my Blockchain Insider podcast co-host, Mr. Kai Sheffield, head of Crypto Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I am doing fantastic. It is great to be, and this is the first time we've ever recorded in person before, and we've done, what, 20, 30 shows virtually? Yeah, no, it's this, been amazing. This is going to be fun. It, it really is. Like, Kai is an expressive individual, so I'm excited for that. We may have some low-flying forearms, but I'm so here for that. Um, and also joining us, making a FinTech Insider debut, welcome uh, Carmel Cadet, who is founder and CEO at MTech. Carmel, so good to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan. No, we're a big fan of you, so thank you for being here with us. <laughs> thank uh, you. And last uh, is another FinTech Insider debut is Jennifer Lassitier. Did I say that right? Oh, close. Uh, Lassiter. Lassiter. I'm yes. so sorry no, for butchering. Okay. I like Lassiterier, yeah, no, however I, you said it. Uh, that is mysterious. No, let's make it yeah, mysterious. Thank you it. for that. You it. can tell we're live. That, that's how we do it. I should have checked that beforehand. Apologies. Um, you are Executive Director at the Digital Dollar Project. Can you give us a brief introduction to the Digital Dollar Project? Absolutely. We are a 501c3, so we're a public charity um, based in the United States, and we work to bring private sector players together to experiment on central bank digital currency. Um, the result of all of our experiments are open data, open analysis, and we hope will be used by lots of policymakers, uh, technical experts, et cetera, as we consider design choices for CBDC. So as you can see, we have the perfect panel to mm -hmm. discuss this topic. But before the panel answers anything, we're gonna go to the Slido app because we've got a question for you guys in the audience to have a little think about. Um, so the question in your Slido app, if you have it available, slido.app, I think it is, uh, to, to kind of pull that up. I don't know if we can pull up the instructions behind us to my kind friends in the, in the oh. stage behind us. Um, the question via the Slido app for the audience was, George Washington is on the $1 bill, Abraham Lincoln is on the $5 bill, and Benjamin Franklin is on the $100 bill, but who should be the face of a digital dollar and why? So if you have the Slido app and you have the instructions available from a previous panel, which I'm sure you do, um, please do send out and we'll read uh, a few of our favorite suggestions towards the end of it. Who should be 
on that. But let's start with a 101. What the heck is a CBDC? Kai, how, how, how do you define it? So I think it's, it's helpful to try and start with the economist definition of which I am not an economist, so I, I will do my <laughs> best. But today, there are two forms of central bank money uh, in society. And those are central bank reserves, which are digital, electronic really, but only accessible to banks. And then there's cash, which is physical, but it's accessible to consumers, to businesses, and distributed by banks. And so people think about this concept of CBDC as a third form of central bank money that is digital, but is accessible to consumers and businesses. And so it would effectively be digital cash. And if you imagine cash goes away in the future, is it the role of the central bank to create digital cash? And then you get to this notion of a digital currency. I like to think about that as kind of a token controlled by a private key. So it's a bare asset. And so if someone says, oh, you could just give everyone an account at the central bank, I'd argue that's not actually CBDC because there's no bare asset, there's no token. And so I think it's really important to frame, there's both a question around liability and what type of money is it? And then there's a question around what rails does that money run on? And you kind of have to address both of them separately and there are a lot of different ways that it could go. Kamal, how would you build on that? Because there's lots of types of digital money today. Is there a difference between all of these forms of digital money and central bank digital currency? Uh, I think one thing that stands out when it comes to central bank digital currency is that there are no other counterparties or institutions like a central bank. Uh, if you think about uh, the policy and you, if you think about their role in any financial market being able to provide financial stability or being the only legal um, institution that can print cash, um, and we can argue whether the macro policies and, and the, the impact on the economy make sense, but the unlimited power to print more mm -hmm. is something that is unique to central banks. Um, and sometimes we love it, sometimes we hate it. During the, the pandemic, I think everyone, I don't, if you return your stimulus, you can raise your hand. Mm -hmm. uh, but Did the, you? Anyone? <laughs> no? But okay. the concept of being able to issue more in case um, and situations like this is pretty unique to, to central banks. So when you think about um, cryptocurrencies and now um, more private forms of digital assets or stable coins more and more going into the, um, the banking sector representing what deposits are today, but you know, with a virtual token, you definitely see a unique value proposition for a central bank to make cash digital uh, because a bank can fail. And a central bank can fail too, but when you compare whether the Fed or Bank of America can fail, you would say which one has yeah. a, a different risk profile to fail. So I think that's, that's a unique value proposition. And of course, making that um, a technical term, which is legal tender, um, it's also very unique to the central bank and, and being able to make this form of currency accepted by default um, for broad access. That accepted by default is interesting, isn't it, Jennifer? Because the, there are other tokens out there. We have these things called stable coins. We've got other sorts of digital money. Um, PayPal is a type of digital money. Heck, I, I can use Visa online for just about anything. So how is that sort of different? And how are you sort of separating stable coins from CBDCs in your own mind? 
So a central bank digital currency in the suite of digital currencies or cryptographic currencies, you could say, is the only digital currency that would sit on the Federal Reserve's ledger, right? It is, it is one for one for US dollar. Mm -hmm. It is the only digital currency that would be. Um, stable coins, of course, are um, anchored in some instances to the US dollar, but they carry a higher risk profile because of their volatility um, in that formulation. So a central bank digital currency would be a US dollar, mm. um, hopefully in a tokenized format. Um, and I think that's still up for debate. So as we are starting to experiment and understand, as you can imagine, there's an ocean of possibilities about technical and policy design choices to be made around central bank digital currencies. They're also not one for one, right? So a US central bank digital currency is going to have different design choices than one out of the UK, than one out of the Caribbean, right? Um, by nature, CBDCs will look different. But as we start to test those and understand those, I think it's really important to look at the technology that does currently exist, um, the work that Visa is currently doing, for example, um, the infrastructure that stablecoins are running on right now, and learn from that and apply those learnings into this decision-making process around central bank digital currencies. Kai, um, when you think about some of the advantages and disadvantages, why would we want a central bank digital currency as described? Because there's, there's pros and cons here. I guess the, the way that I like to ask the question is, you know, should there be a digital, you know, programmable, composable dollar that serves as a developer platform that's easy for people to build up? And I think the answer to that, everyone would say is yes. And I think we're starting to see that happen you know, through the private sector with stable coins. And so then you could start to ask, what should the relationship and the role of the central bank be you know, in relation to that currency? And you know, then you have these models like synthetic CBDC, which sounds like a drug. It is not a drug. It is a real concept created by the IMF, which is say, what if you take a stable coin and you back it by a central bank reserve? Does that become a CBDC? And so I think the lines between these are probably thinner than most people realize. And what's interesting is one approach is to say you could start from the bottoms up and say, how are people using these digital forms of currencies today? How are people using stable coins? What is the demand for it? And then how do you make sure that those are backed by the safest form of money? The other approach is how do you design something from scratch that starts at the central bank but if you don't have a very clear use case of this is exactly what it's going to be used for, it's very hard to do. So it's kind of this bottoms up versus top down approach. And it depends on the use case, how you want to actually design one of these products. There was a great blog post by the IMF that said that central banks are faced with a choice of do they become, do they try and be a technology company? Do they try and build really great consumer tech? Is that what they are? Because I mean, the original cash is a consumer technology. It's got uh, a unique reference number on it. It's widely accepted. They print the thing. They own the printing presses. They've kind of got all of that. Is that their job here? Or is their job to just set the policy around it and, and do something else? And we've seen you know, China is going into the technology game. China has created its own central bank digital currency. It's live now with more than 10 million users, um, a couple of nearly half a million merchants, uh, the digital currency electronic payment. 
And so if there is this programmable, composable digital currency already available from China, does the US have a competition issue there that it needs to, to start to think about? But also Nigeria has um, started to launch its own. We've seen Barbados kind of do its own. So Jennifer, how do you think about the, the international uh, reasons why versus the domestic reasons why? Thank you. I was going to ask if I could jump in on that question. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think what I was thinking as Kai was talking was, yes, there is. these are the business cases. I think it's really important to look at what are the problems we're trying to solve. Um, we're not just chasing flashy technology, right? Um, I also think there's a converse question there, which is what happens if we choose not to issue a US central bank digital currency? So feeding off of what you just said, Simon, I think the, the US CBDC is almost secondary to how do we exist if the, we know the future is digital. We know that the goal of the future financial ecosystem is interoperability. And should we choose not to issue a US CBDC because it doesn't solve the problems that we think that it's going to solve. And we know that because we've set out and done pilots and we've tested, et cetera. Um, then how do we exist in this global economy? Uh, how do we play once it's built? How do we influence the building right now? What does that look like? And what role does the US have in that process? I would argue quite a large role um, as you know the world's reserve currency. Um, and I know in the executive order, the president spoke very specifically to ongoing efforts uh, that are happening right now globally to help influence and form these policy conversations. But it's um, you know two conversations, I think. One is how do we, we play as a global operator? And then the second is, do we want a US CBDC? And if we do, what design, what policy and technical design choices need to be made to solve the problems that I think are unique to the United States? Yeah. And it is, um, but you can't also solve the problems to the United States without solving for the world as That's the world's right. reserve currency. That's right. This stuff's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. Uh, crazy ideas. So with just scratching the surface of how complex this subject is and, and how much uh, it's like an octopus, we're going to poll the audience and make oh. them decide. So you're on the hook now. Um, having heard our panel lay out CBDCs just a little, um, I want to get a round of applause from the audience on the, like, do you want to see CBDCs, yes or no? So if you do want to see CBDCs on balance, net-net, <laughs> something from a central bank would be good, whether it's uh, whatever form that takes. I want to see it because it will move the space forward, make some noise, go. Was that a golf clap or was that enthusiasm? I can't tell. Uh, what about CBDCs or a privacy nightmare? We should stay away from this and let the private sector do its thing. Go. That was a golf clap. All right, so we want the legitimacy. That, that tells you a lot about the audience. What are your thoughts on the audience? I want to jump in on something yeah. you said of like, Please. one of the questions is who makes the decisions around how it's designed? That's right. mm. And I think that's something not a lot of people are thinking about of, you know, is it the central bank? You know, is it Congress? Is it the public? Mm -hmm. Like, what rail it runs on is a much bigger question to me, or what rails than yes or no, should you have one? Yeah. And I think that's where it's not really clear what is the optimal way to decide and what role should the private sector yeah. and developers play in, you know, when I go back to looking at, at stablecoins, they run on 12 different blockchains. You have this open public market competition 
different programming languages, you know, different levels of features, and to try and have one entity say, here's the one rail, is a huge challenge. And so we have to think about who makes the decision and how that decision gets made. So I, I, oh, I'd no, love no. to jump in on this. Um, so MTech is a fintech building central bank digital currency platforms, and it is a very tough decision. Uh, but as we mentioned, there is a foundation when it comes to the role of a central bank in an economy. Um, if you think about cash today, as you mentioned, um, today the central bank is not going to someone and giving them paper cash, but if you have paper cash in your pocket today, you have a relationship with the Fed. Yeah. It's not a relationship with Bank of America or Citi and so on. So there is that expectation that there is an infrastructure, and cash for us, when I think of cash, is an infrastructure, not just a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. um, the ordering, the printing, the um, forecasting of how much you're going to need, and the ordering of that, and of course the shipping, and everything that goes in, it's a whole infrastructure that supplies cash today. So tomorrow, um, if you think about the role that the central bank plays, um, and the need of a broader and, and more diverse ecosystem than what it used to be, you get into a conversation on um, how should it be built um, given those two uh, dynamics. And that's why I think you don't see a lot of central banks going into um, the direct consumer model and saying, we're going to build our own app. Um, mm -hmm. Although, you know, Central Bank of, of Bahamas started that way when they yeah. did their first pilot. Well, in China. And, and China. Because sometimes it takes a lot to bring the ecosystem on board. And as a central bank, you can prove out the first concept and the same, um, the value proposition. But you need an ecosystem to actually really create adoption. Um, and, and if you add one more thing, that the fact that the central bank wants to maintain stability, um, is not for them to go to the market and provide that stability, is really how do you make the broader ecosystem more stable mm. and accessible. So that leads into how you build for it and taking that into consideration. Um, we have a very, very aligned view on it should be an infrastructure that talks about um, how do you give access to fintechs, banks, payment service providers, digital asset banks, and the innovation that's happening at the retail market for it to connect back to the central bank. And the central bank can also turn around and really see that, see the ecosystem as a, a very efficient distribution network. Right, and that's how you get adoption. That's how you get trust, um, because you're not trying to go to the consumer and say, "Trust me." You can trust your PayPal. You can trust your mm -hmm. um, MX. You can trust your TD Bank. You can trust whoever. Um, but that infrastructure that uh, lays at the very foundation um, of the financial market can really make a big impact down the line. I like that word distribution because manufacture and distribution are two Absolutely. different things. Manufacturing of cash and distribution of like the Fed doesn't distribute all of the cash everywhere. There's people in vans and carrying those crazy security things that wear the funny hats. Like those are the people distributing cash. And as you say, it's an infrastructure that moves around the country. But also talk about the importance of the role that cash plays in many consumers' lives, in many businesses' lives. We want digital payments, but cash is still holding on for, for good reasons in many cases. Absolutely, and we, we spend a lot of time um, in the emerging markets, and even in the US, you know, for about 
20% um, of the US population, which is something that you, we don't particularly see all the time because we're so banked and so digital and Apple Pay and everything is so digital. Um, but there's about 20% um, the population in the US that really um, lacks access, access to banks. And as you mentioned earlier, it's either you have paper cash or you have a bank account. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you don't have access to digital finance really the way we enjoy it. So you either go to um, um, check, check, um, check loans or payday loans um, that gives you access to cash and they give you cash for your paper, for your check. So you have an infrastructure that really only gives you two options. It's either your paper base or you have to go through um, a banking system. And that infrastructure itself is very vital to billions of people today. Even if you have a job in the US, if you run into a tough time or you have to pay some medical bills and your account becomes negative, for example, you're going to run cash until your paycheck comes in so you can pay the NSF fees and you can make your account um, um, whole again. So you have those use cases that are very embedded into the financial system. A lot of us, you know, 60% of the US population really lives paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Um, and that's something that you are a one sickness away from bankruptcy, as they mm -hmm. say. Um, and that infrastructure really becomes important and cash, as you go in and out. Cash plays that crucial role in people's lives. People are able to budget with something physical yeah. and it survives. And the crazy thing to the bare instrument terms really important, isn't it? It's like if I take this bottle of water and I give it to Jennifer, you now have that and I no longer do. And that instant settlement doesn't happen in any other payments rail. Uh, it, you see two-day delays, three-day delays, fraud checks, everything else. The, from a consumer's perspective, the fact that I've got paid and I can take that anywhere, or that I can budget and I can see it physically, there's something about that that's really inclusive and works for a lot of people that, that's kind of exciting. Um, Jennifer, I want to take a, a, a different perspective and just kind of look at, as you've observed the likes of Sweden's Riksbank and, and China's digital currency and, and everything else, how do you think about the pros and cons for international payments, the role of the dollar globally? Is, is there an advantage and disadvantage to having a central bank digital currency? Would it mean that I could send money abroad faster, cheaper? Would it mean that the US dollar has a bigger role if, if, uh, if we have this thing? I think it opens up more questions than it does answers, <laughs> just to lead with that. Um, but yes, I think the, the assumption or the hypothesis right now is that we would see efficiencies, we would see uh, cash reserves freeing up, right? Uh, freeing up liquidity through some of the wholesale use cases. Cross-border remittance, looking at folks that are sending money between countries um, and finding cost savings there uh, in, in various mechanisms through the process, right? Not just the removal of intermediaries, um, but again, that, that instant settlement um, and, and transfer that might happen. Um, I think another a question or a place that that we have to start explore exploring and, I, and again I, I find um, you know innovation tends to uh, accelerate out of crisis right we saw it in the pandemic certainly with the, within the fintech community um, and I think we're seeing it now with the invasion in Ukraine and looking at the way that Ukraine has been using cryptocurrencies um, looking at uh, how Russia has started to talk about cryptocurrencies um, and starting to think on a global perspective about what it would mean if we had central bank digital currencies that were in play in these conversations right now. And look, I was 
heartbroken in the initial images that we saw um, coming out of Europe when the war started, where folks were lined up at ATMs to get cash out so that they could flee their country. And, and there's a bit of a, a, a tug at the heartstrings there, right? If you can imagine, you, you could just pick up your digital device and you're able to go. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a question here in terms of um, uh, global policy and sanctions and ability to to influence global discourse um, that is very worthy to unpack um, and understand which design choices would lead us to which outcomes in that context. It was kind of interesting in the uh, in the report. There were some really great advantages that were, were sort of laid out: a safe digital payment option for households, faster cross-border payments. Um, collect taxes or make benefit payments directly to citizens. That's kind of interesting. So you don't, um, tax season, um, imagine if that was automated for you without TurboTax, that'd be nice. Um, and preserve the dominant role of the US dollar and reduce barriers for financial inclusion. But there were some challenges, which is, um, what about the role of um, banks who rely on deposits to fund their loans? What about um, striking a balance between privacy rights and transparency? Uh, what about um, the cyber resilience? How do you think about some of the disadvantages, Kai, that, that you've seen in this space um, laid out so far? Do, do, you, do you get concerned about the privacy thing? Uh, you're worried about cyber attacks? Are you worried that consumers walking around with their entire bank balance as cash on their phone? Is that, is that potentially a, a, a theft problem waiting to happen? Yeah, I think it all, it all depends how it's designed, but one point that I think is interesting is just what does this mean for banks and how does this change the business model of a bank? And there is some concern to say that you know, if people now have access to this risk-free you know, government liability, will they move funds out of their checking account, out of deposits from the bank and move them into the CBDC? Will that hurt banks' ability to lend? Then there's questions around, okay, well, should you cap the amount that someone should have in CBDC? And then how do banks you know, monetize their services? What, what are the business models? You know, do they charge you fees you know, like a safe deposit box that you know, they're just a wallet that holds those funds? And then who should actually be able to operate a wallet? You know, is it just banks or is it any fintech? And how do you make that barrier to entry as low as possible for anyone to build a wallet so you have competition you know, in the market? And so I think there are a lot of questions there that you know, it's gonna take time to work through. And I think we're seeing this shift where central banks are realizing you can write all the papers that you want <laughs> and it just, it, it's impossible to answer these. You have to actually start to experiment. You have to go talk to some consumers. You have to put something in front of them and really bring the private sector in you know, to help you know, test and design you know, how to mitigate you know, some of these very real risks uh, that they have. And privacy is just a whole other bucket. Simon, I, I want to hear your thoughts on like, what do consumers think about what level of data should central banks have on their payments? Yeah, right. Should they be able to see everything that you're buying or uh, not? I think consumers want something that just works, uh, <laughs> ultimately. And so if I could have a thing yeah. that auto-filed my taxes, that'd be great. Uh, could you imagine? If I could have a thing that didn't require me to go to an exchange, take my dollars to get this other kind of dollar so that I could move that dollar. Oh, what? I want it to just work. But the problem with just works is that's actually really hard to do practically. Great design hides complexity. 
quality. Uh, you can tell a lot of work went into making this feel effortless is, is kind of my favorite design principle. So some consumers increasingly really, really care about privacy. Some will literally give you their children just to get free Wi-Fi. So it, it, it's just kind of the, uh, I don't know if you've ever signed up for a product and you're just, yes, next, yes, just let me get to the thing. Except the cookies. Except the cookies, <laughs> like they sound tasty. I'm a cookie monster, like so let me have the thing. So generally like, Privacy could be, the problem you've got with anything that's on a blockchain, a permissionless public blockchain, uh, or even a CBDC, if it uses anything like that kind of technology is, imagine if I saw every transaction you ever did, or even just the last five you did. So I would see where you bought a coffee at what time, I would see uh, which hotel you stayed at, what taxi you got, where you went from and to. I could literally stalk you and know everything about you, and you would have no privacy. So there is a real fear that we move from this sort of kind of opaque, kind of easy to launder money financial system that has its flaws, has its problems, kind of stuck in paper to this one that is super efficient, but a privacy nightmare. So that's why those design choices become super, super important. Can I interject there? Of course you can, thing. please do. Um, because privacy is um, extraordinarily important to the Digital Dollar Project. And I will tell you whether I'm having a coffee you know, with a 25-year-old who's been digital, digitally native, essentially, um, or I'm sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, the conversation always comes back to privacy, right? Yeah. It's very important. But the definition of privacy varies. And so what you just said around how folks were viewing privacy or, or, or transacting and, and viewing it as a private transaction, I think most people, if you explain to them how much data is collected on them and by whom would be horrified. Um, but I do think... Defining privacy is so important because it's so different by geographic region, by culture, by socioeconomic factors. There's, there's just so much that goes into how an individual defines privacy. But what you're seeing in the data, right, if you look at the first round of data that came out of Project Hamilton, which the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, along with MIT's Digital Currency Initiative, um, created a CBDC prototype. It was, it was just meant to start, start the conversation. The first user research they did, they were testing that hypothesis of whether the end user, the individual, wanted to prioritize privacy first, right? So they ran a survey that was run in Europe last year, almost same exact survey, and then they compared the answers. In Europe, you had um, EU citizens that had that individual privacy right at the top. That was the most important when given a list of factors. In the United States, what the first round of research showed with the population that they tested is actually it was like three or four. Mm -hmm. And it was because that ease of transaction was starting to sneak up, but also the way that privacy was defined was not necessarily privacy with the government, it was privacy with the community. So it was less a concern with this particular group that folks in the government would see the transaction and more the concern that you, Simon, my neighbor, would see my transaction. Yeah. So again, it's, it's so nuanced and one of the things out of the Federal Reserve Board paper um, that you just cited is they use the term consumer privacy. Well, what is consumer <laughs> privacy, right? Like Privacy me, from who for what? Exactly. Yeah. It's individual privacy. And I think the United States is so uniquely situated to address this in a way um, that many other countries are not 
because of our Constitution and because of the way that we think about the Fourth Amendment and, and, and the First Amendment, right, with freedom of speech, and starting to really think about how we adapt those legal frameworks to start to create the boundaries for the government around how a central bank digital currency is designed and used. And this is where I'll just make the connection of why it's so important to have that private-public partnership yeah. to understand and develop those rails, but also our Constitution protects us from the government. It does, it does not protect us from the private sector necessarily. And we're seeing this play out right now with the internet and I think with social large social media organizations and, and who's collecting, right? Who's collecting what data and how's it being used and when does censorship happen? Um, those are all transferable problems to the to a central bank digital currency. So as what I the conversation I really like to have with the folks that raise their hand and say, leave it to the private sector, let's let cryptocurrencies kind of play out here is who, who fixes that when it breaks? And what legal framework do we have to protect ourselves against that, that system or, or, or that privacy mechanism? And in the United States, it is the US Constitution. So that is what I think really moves me towards we need um, a central bank digital currency because that is where we will really dig in and understand individual privacy and start to prioritize that in the design conversation. Interesting. We, we need that set of principles um, that I think we all align behind about how, how this thing should be, and, and that should be really simple principles are hard to do. Um, so we're going to move to sort of what plays out and what happens next. So quick straw poll of the panel. Do you agree with a recent Bank of America paper that the digital dollar is now inevitable? Jennifer? I don't think anything's inevitable. One crisis and, and everything can go, or one election, right? And, and things can change dramatically. I do think that the momentum and all signs point towards central bank digital currency of some form, right? Yeah. We don't know what form that'll take Come up. Up. I have a very hard time um, seeing the US not doing this, given the global dynamics and the risk of not doing it. Ooh. Depends on the form and the rails. That's what matters. It's like currency or no currency, how does it operate? And who operates the, the rails? And I think that stable coins are solving that really well. There's a lot of work to be done to improve the construction and you know, security and management of stable coins. But uh, I, I think the other point from earlier is, you know, you talked about the international landscape. It's interesting because other currencies don't have that much demand outside of their markets. And so they're very much solving like a domestic payments question, which I think you'd ask, how is this better than RTP? And does RTP solve some of those domestic payment problems? Mm. The US has this extraordinary advantage because there's so much demand for dollars outside of it. The Euro And dollar. so it's in our interest to say, how do we make dollars as accessible as possible to people across the world who want them? And I think that there's an important role for central for the central bank to play. Yeah, the euro dollar is an interesting lesson in that. If you've not looked at the history of the euro dollar, that's some good homework for this audience to to, to try and think about and, and think about how it gets that adopted. And the other thing here is it's not necessarily um, public sector versus private sector. It's the open source world yeah, as yes. well. Mm -hmm. What can be done in sunlight's the best disinfectant. The really interesting thing we see uh, happening in the crypto sphere mm -hmm. is how much happens transparently. How 
how much is voted on in an open source, open and inclusive dialogue, that is maybe halfway between the two in a way that could be really interesting to see adopted. So what are our principles for developing these, these digital dollars? All right, I'm gonna come back to the audience question of who should be the face of the digital dollar and why, um, but did you guys have any thoughts you wanted to jump in with? Who should be the face? I, I think it depends. Uh, you can make it whatever you want. If it's sitting in your wallet, you could probably change the face of it every day if you wanted to, just like your background on your computer. Oh, like PFPs for the digital it's dollar. It's an NFT, the face is Yeah. Yeah, NFT. Put an NFT on a CBDC. I think you got to get the kids interested. Why are the kids going to adopt a CBDC? What's fun, what's cool about it? You got to think about that. Why not? Let's get creative. Jennifer, any thoughts? I think I was at a hybrid blend of these answers because as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, gosh, this is such a traditional way to think about pretty innovative look at changing money. And then I kept thinking about my kids because quite frankly, you know, I hope that we'll see it in our lifetime, but my six and eight year old, they're already digital. You hand them cash and they're like, what is this trash, right? <laughs> like, where's my green light account? Um, <laughs> So I, I just kept thinking of my kids. And, and back to open source, I would say, as I think about how we collaboratively build this platform, right? we'll build products on top. That's great. Um, but the CBDC, to me, is the opportunity to extend the people's code. right? So when the federal government, the US federal government, adopted a US, um, an open source policy, the first one under President Obama, the language they used was, this is the people's code. That's how I think about central bank digital currency. Like That's why everyone in this room needs to have a voice and an opinion in how this is being <laughs> sculpted. This is the people's code. So what is that face? I don't know, creatives in this audience I think maybe we put it right. Maybe it's an individual NFT, but it's the not people's. some Our person. Mood colors or something. <laughs> That's right. Do we It'll be a moon bird. Right. Crypto punks, perhaps. Right. Whatever the no. But I NFT think to that hour. point, if I could add, just Please. that people's code concept. Um, for us, we we see it in a technical sense. Um, we really believe that CBDC should be API first infrastructures. Mm. Here, here. Well, there's a project from the Bank of International Settlements, Project Rosalind, with the Bank mm -hmm. of England looking at exactly how you build APIs on top of mm -hmm. CBDCs. They should come back to us. We already did. Uh, yeah, well, they, they absolutely, oh, we'll connect some dots after the show. Um, speaking of which, um, the DTCC's done some work with Digital Dollar Project. You guys should, should check all of that out, too. There's a lot of good stuff that you guys should mm -hmm. check out as an audience. Just need to read a few out here very quickly, my three favorite. Um, somebody said Al Gore because he invented the internet, making CBDC. <laughs> Season, season possible. Shout out to whoever did that. Um, somebody said we had two separate votes uh, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, RBG, because yeah, yeah, RBG, it's got to be, hasn't it? Um, that, I think that's probably my favorite. Um, and then somebody said uh, Kai, Kai Sheffield. Oh. Um, uh, <laughs> Alrighty, um, so that does wrap up this discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies? Let's start with Kai. On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. Carmel. Uh, Carmel Cadet, I'm on LinkedIn, founder and CEO of MTech. You can follow me there and on Twitter. And Jennifer. Uh, Twitter also at jbrookslassiter, uh, LinkedIn is the same, and digitaldollarproject.org. Fantastic. You'll find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, and you'll find me at 11fs.com. Thank you, audience, for listening. Thank you for listening along at home. And remember to go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. 
Fintech Insider is available really on good. all good podcast clients right now. Check it out um, and leave us a review as well. It really, really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much and goodbye for now. Thank you. Thank you.